Okay. Oh, I have to stop you for a second. Okay, so we are going to get into the cycle of the werewolf. How many of you think you know who may have wrote that? That's a quickie question. And I'm sure you're probably all right. <laughs> it would be Stephen King. Of the Werewolf by Stephen King. In memory of Davis Grubb and all the voices of glory. In the stinking darkness under the barn, he raised his shaggy head. His yellow, stupid eyes gleamed. I hunger, he whispered. Henry Ellender, The Wolf. Thirty days hath September, April, June, and November. All the rest but the second have thirty-one. Rain and snow and jolly sun, and the moon grows fat in every one. Child's rhyme. It wasn't right anyway. January. Somewhere high above, the moon shines down fat and full. But here, in Tarker's Mills, a January blizzard has choked the sky with snow. The wind rams full force down a deserted Center Avenue. The orange town plows have given up long since. Arnie Westrom, flagman on the GS and Double M Railroad, has been caught in the small tool and signal shack nine miles out of town with his small gasoline-powered rail rider blocked by drifts. He is waiting out the storm there, playing last man out solitaire with a pack of greasy bicycle cards. Outside, the wind rises to a shrill scream. Westrom raises his head uneasily, and then looks back down at his game again. It is only the wind, after all. But the wind doesn't scratch at doors and whine to be let in. He gets up, a tall, lanky man in a wool jacket and railroad coveralls, a camel cigarette jutting from one corner of his mouth, his seamed New England face lit in soft orange tones by the kerosene lantern which hangs on the wall. The scratching comes again. Someone's dog, he thinks, lost and wanting to be let in. That's all it is. But still, he pauses. Oh. It would be inhuman to leave it out there in the cold, he thinks. No. Not that it is much warmer in here. In spite of the battery-powered heater, he can see the cold cloud of his breath. But still, he hesitates. A cold finger of fear is probing just below his heart. This has been a bad season in Tarker's Mills. There have been omens of evil on the land. 
Arnie has his father's Welsh blood strong in his veins, and he doesn't like the feel of things. Before he can decide what to do about his visitor, the low-pitched whining rises to a snarl. There is a thud as something incredibly heavy hits the door, draws back, hits again. The door trembles in its frame, and a puff of snow billows in from the top. Arnie Westrom stares around, looking for something to shore it up with. But before he can do more than reach for the flimsy chair he has been sitting in, the snarling thing strikes the door again with incredible force, splintering it from top to bottom. It holds for a moment longer, bowed in on a vertical line, and lodged in it, kicking and lunging, its snout wrinkled back in a snarl, its yellow eyes blazing, is the biggest wolf Arnie has ever seen. And its snarls sound terribly like human words. The door splinters, groans, gives. In a moment, the thing will be inside. In the corner, amongst a welter of tools, a pick leans against the wall. Arnie lunges for it and seizes it as the wolf thrusts its way inside and crouches, its yellow eyes gleaming at the cornered man. Its ears are flattened back, furry triangles. Its tongue lolls. Behind it, snow gusts in through a door that has been shattered down the center. It springs with a snarl, and Arnie Westrom swings the pick. Once. Outside. The feeble lamplight shines raggedly on the snow through the splintered door. The wind whoops and howls. The screams begin. Something inhuman has come to Tarker's Mills, as unseen as the full moon riding the night sky high above. It is the werewolf, and there is no more reason for its coming now than there would be for the arrival of cancer or a psychotic with murder on his mind, or a killer tornado. Its time is now. Its place is here, in this little main town, where baked bean church suppers are a weekly event, where small boys and girls still bring apples to their teachers, where the nature outings of the Senior Citizens Club are religiously reported in the weekly paper. Next week, there will be news of a darker variety. Outside, its tracks begin to fill up with snow, and the shriek of the wind seems savage with pleasure. There is nothing of God or light in that heartless sound. It is all black winter and dark ice. The cycle of the werewolf has begun. February. Love, Stella Randolph thinks lying in her narrow virgin's bed, and through her window streams the cold blue light of a St. Valentine's Day full moon. Oh, love, love, love. Love would be like... This year, Stella Randolph, who runs the Tarker's Mills Septon So, has received 20 Valentines, one from Paul Newman, one from Robert Redford, one from John Travolta, even one from Ace Freely of the rock group KISS. They stand open on the bureau across the room from her, illuminated in the moon's cold blue light. She sent them all to herself, this year as every year. 
love would be like a kiss at dawn or the last kiss, the real one. At the end of the Harlequin romance stories, love would be like roses in twilight. They laugh at her in Tarker's Mills. Yes, you bet. Small boys joke and snigger at her from behind their hands. And sometimes, if they are safe across the street and Constable Neary isn't around, they will chant Fatty Fatty 2x4 in their sweet, high-mocking sopranos. But she knows about love and about the moon. Her store is failing by inches, and she weighs too much. But now, on this night of dreams, with the moon a bitter blue flood through frost-traced windows, it seems to her that love is still a possibility. Love and the scent of summer as he comes. Love would be like the rough feel of a man's cheek that rub and scratch and suddenly there is a scratching at the window she starts up on her elbows the coverlet falling away from her ample bosom the moonlight has been blocked out by a dark shape amorphous but clearly masculine and she thinks I am dreaming and in my dreams I will let him come in my dreams I will let myself they use the word dirty, but the word is clean. The word is right. Love would be like coming. She rises, convinced that this is a dream. Because there is a man crouched out there, a man she knows, a man she passes on the street nearly every day. It is love. Love is coming. Love has come. But as her pudgy fingers fall on the cold sash of the window, she sees it is not a man at all. It is an animal out there. A huge, shaggy wolf. His forepaws on the outer sill, his rear legs buried up to the haunches in the snowdrift which crouches against the west side of her house here on the outskirts of town. But it's Valentine's Day and there will be love she thinks. Her eyes have deceived her even in her dream. It is a man. That man. And he is so wickedly handsome. Wickedness, yes. Love would be like wickedness. And he has come this moon-decked night, and he will take her. He will. She throws the window up. And it is the blast of cold air billowing her filmy blue nightgown out behind that tells her that this is no dream. The man is gone. And with a sensation like swooning, she realizes he was never there. She takes a shuddering, groping step backward, and the wolf leaps smoothly into her room and shakes itself, spraying a dreamy sugar puff of snow in the darkness. But love, love is like, is like, like a scream. Too late, she remembers Arnie Westrom, torn apart in the railroad shack to the west of town only a month before. Too late. The wolf pads toward her, yellow eyes gleaming with cool lust. Stella Randolph backs slowly toward her narrow virgin's bed until the back of her pudgy knees strike the frame and she collapses upon it. 
moonlight parts the beast's shaggy fur in a silvery streak. On the bureau, the Valentine cards shiver minutely in the breeze from the open window. One of them falls and seesaws lazily to the floor, cutting the air in big, silent arcs. The wolf puts its paw upon the bed, one on either side of her, and she can smell its breath. Hot, but somehow not unpleasant. Its yellow eyes stare into her. Lover, she whispers and closes her eyes. It falls upon her. Love is like dying. March. The last real blizzard of the year. Heavy, wet snow turning to sleet as dusk comes on and the night closes in. Has brought branches tumbling down all over Tarker's mills with the heavy gunshot cracks of rotted wood. Mother Nature's pruning out her dead wood. Milt Sturmfuller, the town librarian, tells his wife over coffee. He is a thin man with a narrow head and pale blue eyes, and he has kept his pretty silent wife in a bondage of terror for 12 years now. There are a few who suspect the truth. Constable Neary's wife, Joan, is one. But the town can be a dark place, and no one knows for sure but them. The town keeps its secrets. Milt likes his phrase so well that he says it again. Yep, Mother Nature is pruning her deadwood. And then the lights go out, and Donna Lee Sturmfuller utters a gasping little scream. She also spills her coffee. You clean that up, her husband says coldly. You clean that up right now. Yes, honey. In the dark, she fumbles for a dish towel with which to clean up the spilled coffee and barks her shin on a footstool. She cries out. In the dark, her husband laughs heartily. He finds his wife's pain more amusing than anything, except maybe the jokes they have in the Reader's Digest. Those jokes. Humor in uniform. Life in these United States really tickle his funny bone. As well as Deadwood, Mother Nature has pruned a few power lines out by Tarker Brook this wild March night. The sleet has coated the big lines, growing heavier and heavier until they have parted and fallen on the road like a nest of snakes, lazily turning and spitting blue fire. All of Tarker's mills goes dark. As if finally satisfied, the storm begins to slack off. And not long before midnight, the temperature has plummeted from 33 degrees to 16. Slush freezes solid in weird sculptures. Old Man Haig's Hayfield, known locally as 40 Acre Field, takes on a cracked glaze look. The houses remain dark. Oil furnaces tick and cool. No linesman is yet able to get up the skating rink roads. The clouds pull apart. A full moon slips in and out between the remnants. The ice-coating Main Street glows like dead bone. In the night, something begins to howl. Later, no one will be able to say where the sound came from. It was everywhere and nowhere 
as the full moon painted the darkened houses of the village, everywhere and nowhere, as the march wind began to rise and moan like a dead berserker winding his horn, it drifted on the wind, lonely and savage. Donna Lee hears it as her unpleasant husband sleeps the sleep of the just beside her. Constable Neary hears it as he stands at the bedroom window of his Laurel Street apartment in his long handles. Ollie Parker, the fat and ineffectual grammar school principal, hears it in his own bedroom. Others hear it as well. One of them is a boy in a wheelchair. No one sees it, and no one knows the name of the drifter the linesman found the next morning when he finally got out by Tarker Brook to repair the downed cables. The drifter was coated with ice, head cocked back in a silent scream, ragged old coat and shirt beneath chewed open. The drifter sat in a frozen pool of his own blood, staring at the downed lines, his hand still held up in a warding-off gesture with ice between the fingers. And all around him are paw prints. Wolf prints. April. By the middle of the month, the last of the snow flurries have turned to showers of rain, and something amazing is happening in Tarker's Mills. It is starting to green up. The ice in Matty Tillingham's cow pond has gone out, and the patches of snow in the tract of forest called the Big Woods have all begun to shrink. It seems that the old and wonderful trick is going to happen again. Spring is going to come. The townsfolk celebrate it in small ways in spite of the shadow that has fallen over the town. Grandma Haig bakes pies and sets them out on the kitchen windowsill to cool. On Sunday at the Grace Baptist Church, the Reverend Lester Lowe reads from the Song of Solomon and preaches a sermon titled, The Spring of the Lord's Love. On a more secular note, Chris Wrightson, the biggest drunk in Tarker's Mills, throws his great spring drunk and staggers off in the silvery unreal light of a nearly full April moon. Billy Robertson, bartender and proprietor of the pub, Tarker's Mills' only saloon, watches him go and mutters to the barmaid, If that wolf takes someone tonight, I guess it'll be Chris. Don't talk about it, the barmaid replies, shuddering. Her name is Elise Fournier. She is 24, and she attends the Grace Baptist and sings in the choir because she has a crush on the Reverend Lowe. But she plans to leave the mills by summer crush or no crush. This wolf business has begun to scare her. She has begun to think that the tips might be better in Portsmouth, and the only wolves there wore sailors' uniforms. Nights in Tarker's Mills, as the moon grows fat for the third time that year, are uncomfortable times. The days are better. On the town common, there is suddenly a sky full of kites each afternoon. Brady Kincaid, 11 years old, has gotten a vulture for his birthday and has lost all track of time in his pleasure at feeling the kite tug in his hands like a live thing, watching it dip and swoop through the blue sky above the bandstand. He has forgotten about going home for supper. He is unaware that the other kite flyers have left one by one. With their box kites and tent kites and aluminum flyers, 
tucked securely under their arms, unaware that he is alone. It is the fading daylight and advancing blue shadows which finally make him realize he has lingered too long. That and the moon just rising over the woods at the edge of the park. For the first time, it is a warm weather moon, bloated and orange instead of a cold white. But Brady doesn't notice this. He is only aware that he has stayed too long. His father is probably going to whoop him, and dark is coming. At school, he has laughed at his schoolmates' fanciful tales of the werewolf they say killed the drifter last month, Stella Randolph the month before, Arnie Westrom the month before that. But he doesn't laugh now. As the moon turns April dusk into a bloody furnace glow, stories seem all too real. He begins to wind twine onto his ball as fast as he can, dragging the vulture with its two bloodshot eyes out of the darkening sky. He brings it in too fast, and the breeze suddenly dies. As a result, the kite dives behind the bandstand. He starts toward it, winding up string as he goes, glancing nervously back over his shoulder, and suddenly the string begins to twitch and move in his hands, sawing back and forth. It reminds him of the way his fishing pole feels when he's hooked a big one in Tarker's stream above the mills. He looks at it, frowning, and the line goes slack. A shattering roar suddenly fills the night, and Brady Kincaid screams. He believes now. Yes, he believes now, all right. But it's too late, and his scream is lost under that snarling roar that rises in a sudden chilling glissade to a howl. The wolf is running toward him, running on two legs, its shaggy pelt painted orange with moonfire, its eyes glaring green lamps, and in one paw, a paw with human fingers and claws where the nails should be, is Brady's vulture kite. It is fluttering madly. Brady turns to run, and dry arms suddenly encircle him. He can smell something like blood and cinnamon. And he is found the next day, propped against the war memorial, headless and disemboweled, the vulture kite in one stiffening hand. The kite flutters, as if trying for the sky. As the search party turn away, horrified and sick. It flutters because the breeze has already come up. It flutters as if it knows this will be a good day for kites. May. On the night before homecoming Sunday at the Grace Baptist Church, the Reverend Lester Lowe has a terrible dream from which he awakes trembling, bathed in sweat, staring at the narrow windows of the parsonage. Through them, across the road, he can see his church. Moonlight falls through the parsonage's bedroom windows in still silver beams, and for one moment, he fully expects to see the werewolf the old codgers have all been whispering about. Then he closes his eyes, begging for forgiveness for his superstitious lapse, finishing his prayer by whispering the for Jesus sake amen so his mother taught him to end all his prayers 
Ah, but the dream. In his dream, it was tomorrow, and he had been preaching the homecoming sermon. The church is always filled on homecoming Sunday. Only the oldest of the old codgers still call it old home Sunday now. And instead of looking out on pews half or wholly empty as he does on most Sundays, every bench is full. In his dream, he has been preaching with a fire and a force that he rarely attains in reality. He tends to drone, which may be one reason that Grace Baptist's attendance has fallen off so drastically in the last ten years or so. This morning, his tongue seems to have been touched with the Pentecostal fire. And he realizes that he is preaching the greatest sermon of his life, and its subject is this: the beast walks among us. Over and over he hammers at the point, vaguely aware that his voice has grown roughly strong, that his words have attained an almost poetic rhythm. The beast, he tells them, is everywhere. The great Satan, he tells them, can be anywhere. At a high school dance, buying a deck of Marlboros and a big butane lighter down at the trading post, standing in front of Brighton's drug, eating a Slim Jim, and waiting for the 440 Greyhound from Bangor to pull in. The beast might be sitting next to you at a band concert, or having a piece of pie at the Chat and Chew on Main Street. The beast, he tells them, his voice dropping to a whisper that throbs, and no eye wanders. He has them in thrall. Watch for the beast, for he may smile and say he is your neighbor, but oh, my brethren, his teeth are sharp, and you may mark the uneasy way in which his eyes roll. He is the beast, and he is here now in Tarker's Mills. He, but here he breaks off, his eloquence gone, because something. Terrible is happening out there in his sunny church. His congregation is beginning to change, and he realizes with horror that they are turning into werewolves. All of them, all three hundred of them. Victor Bowl, the head selectman, usually so white and fat and pudgy, his skin is turning brown, roughening, darkening with hair. Violet Mackenzie. Who teaches piano? Her narrow spinster's body is filling out. Her thin nose flattening and splaying. The fat science teacher, Albert Freeman, seems to be growing fatter. His shiny blue suit is splitting. Clock springs of hair are bursting out like the stuffing from an old sofa. His fat lips split back like bladders to reveal teeth the size of piano keys. The beast. The Reverend Low tries to say in his dreams, but the words fail him, and he stumbles back from the pulpit in horror as Cal Blodwin, the Grace Baptist's head deacon, shambles down the center aisle, snarling, money spilling from the silver collection plate, his head cocked to one side. Violet Mackenzie leaps on him, and they roll in the aisle together, biting and shrieking in voices which are almost human. And now the others join in, and the sound is like the zoo at feeding time. And this time the Reverend Low screams it out in a kind of ecstasy: "The beast! The beast is everywhere!" 
Everywhere! Every! But his voice is no longer his voice. It has become an inarticulate snarling sound. And when he looks down, he sees his hands protruding from the sleeves of his good black suit coat and become snaggled paws. And then he awaits. Only a dream, he thinks, lying back down again. Only a dream, thank God. But when he opens the church doors that morning, the morning of homecoming Sunday, the morning after the full moon, it is no dream he sees. It is the gutted body of Clyde Corliss, who has done janitorial work for years, hanging face down over the pulpit. His push broom leans close by. None of this is a dream. The Reverend Lowe only wishes it could be. He opens his mouth, hitches in a great gasping breath, and begins to scream. Spring has come back again, and this year, the beast has come with it. June. On the shortest night of the year, Alfie Knopfler, who runs the Chat and Chew, Tarker's Mill's only cafe, polishes his long formica counter to a gleaming brightness, the sleeves of his white shirt rolled to past his muscular tattooed elbows. The cafe is for the moment completely empty, and as he finishes with the counter, he pauses for a moment, looking out into the street, thinking that he lost his virginity on a fragrant early summer night like this one. The girl had been Arlene McCune, who is now Arlene Bessie, and married to one of Banger's most successful young lawyers. God, how she had moved that night on the back seat of his car, and how sweet the night had smelled. The door into summer swings open and lets in a bright tide of moonlight. He supposes the cafe is deserted because the beast is supposed to walk when the moon is full. But Alfie is neither scared nor worried. Not scared because he weighs 220, and most of it is still good old Navy muscle. Not worried, because he knows the regulars will be in bright and early tomorrow morning for their eggs and their home fries and coffee. Maybe, he thinks, I'll close her up a little early tonight, shut off the coffee urn, button her up, get a six-pack down at the market basket, and take in the second picture at the drive-in. June, June, full moon. A good night for the drive-in and a few beers. A good night to remember the conquests of the past. He is turning toward the coffee maker when the door opens and he turns back, resigned. Say, how you doing? He asks, because the customer is one of his regulars, although he rarely sees this customer later than ten in the morning. The customer nods, and the two of them pass a few friendly words. Coffee? Alfie asks as the customer slips onto one of the padded red counter stools. Please. Well, still time to catch that second show, Alfie thinks, turning to the coffee maker. He don't look like he's good for long. Tired, sick maybe. Still plenty of time to... Shock wipes out the rest of his thought. Alfie gapes stupidly. The coffee maker is as spotless as everything else in the chat and chew, the stainless steel cylinder bright as a metal mirror, 
and in its smoothly bulging convex surface, he sees something as unbelievable as it is hideous. His customer, someone he sees every day, someone everyone in Tarker's Mill sees every day, is changing. The customer's face is somehow shifting, melting, thickening, broadening. The customer's cotton shirt is stretching, stretching, and suddenly the shirt's seams begin to pull apart, and absurdly, all Alfie Knopfler can think of is that show his little nephew Ray used to like to watch, The Incredible Hulk. The customer's pleasant, unremarkable face is becoming something bestial. The customer's mild brown eyes have lightened, have become a terrible gold-green. The customer screams, but the scream breaks apart, drops like an elevator through registers of sound, and becomes a bellowing growl of rage. It, the thing, the beast, werewolf, whatever it is, gropes at the smooth formica and knocks over a sugar shaker. It grabs the thick glass cylinder as it rolls, spraying sugar, and heaves it at the wall where the specials are taped up, still bellowing. Alfie wheels around, and his hip knocks the coffee urn off the shelf. It hits the floor with a bang and sprays hot coffee everywhere, burning his ankles. He cries out in pain and fear. Yes, he is afraid now. His 220 pounds of good Navy muscle are forgotten now. His nephew Ray is forgotten now. His backseat coupling with Arlene McCune is forgotten now. And there is only the Beast. Here now, like some horror monster in a drive-in movie. A horror monster that has come right out of the screen. It leaps on top of the counter with a terrible muscular ease. It slacks in tatters, its shirt in rags. Alfie can hear keys and change jingling in its pockets. It leaps at Alfie, and Alfie tries to dodge, but he trips over the coffee urn and goes sprawling on the red linoleum. There is another shattering roar, a flood of warm yellow breath, and then a great red pain as the creature's jaws sink into the deltoid muscles of his back and rip upward with terrifying force. Blood sprays the floor, the counter, the grill. Alfie staggers to his feet with a huge, ragged, spraying hole in his back. He is trying to scream, and white moonlight, summer moonlight, floods in through the windows and dazzles his eyes. The beast leaps on him again. Moonlight is the last thing Alfie sees. July. They canceled the 4th of July. Marty Koslaw gets remarkably little sympathy from the people closest to him when he tells them that. Perhaps it is because they simply don't understand the depth of his pain. Don't be foolish, his mother tells him brusquely. She is often brusque with him, and when she has to rationalize this brusqueness to herself, she tells herself she will not spoil the boy just because he is handicapped, because he is going to spend his life sitting in a wheelchair. Wait until next year, his dad tells him, clapping him on the back. Twice as good. Twice as doodly damn good. You'll see, little bitty buddy. Hey, hey. 
Herman Koslaw is the phys ed teacher at the Tarkers Mills Grammar School, and he almost always talks to his son in what Marty thinks of as dad's big pal voice. He also says, hey, hey, a great deal. The truth is, Marty makes Herman Koslaw a little nervous. Herman lives in a world of violently active children, kids who run races, bash baseballs, swim rally sprints. And in the midst of directing all this, he would sometimes look up and see Marty somewhere close by, sitting in his wheelchair, watching. It made Herman nervous. And when he was nervous, he spoke in his bellowing big pal voice and said, hey, hey, or doodly damn, and called Marty his little bitty buddy. Ha ha, so you finally didn't get something you wanted, his big sister says when he tries to tell her how he had looked forward to this night, how he looks forward to it every year, the flowers of light in the sky over the commons, the flash gun pops of brightness followed by the thudding kerwomp sounds that roll back and forth between the low hills that surrounded the town. Kate is 13 to Marty's 10, and convinced that everyone loves Marty just because he can't walk. She is delighted that the fireworks have been canceled. Even Grandfather Coslaw, who could usually be counted on for sympathy, hadn't been impressed. Nobody's canceling their Fort of July, boy, he said in his heavy Slavic accent. He was sitting on the veranda, and Marty buzzed out through the French doors in his battery-powered wheelchair to talk to him. Grandfather Koslaw sat looking down the slope of the lawn toward the woods, a glass of schnapps in one hand. This had happened on July 2nd, two days ago. It's just the fireworks they cancel, and you know why. Marty did. The killer, that was why. In the papers now, they were calling him the full moon killer, but Marty had heard plenty of whispers around school before classes had ended for the summer. Lots of kids were saying that the full moon killer wasn't a real man at all, but some sort of supernatural creature, a werewolf maybe. Marty didn't believe that. Werewolves were strictly for the horror movies. But he supposed there could be some kind of crazy guy out there who only felt the urge to kill when the moon was full. The fireworks have been canceled because of their dirty, rotten curfew. In January, sitting in his wheelchair by the French doors and looking out onto the veranda, watching the wind blow bitter veils of snow across the frozen crust, or standing by the front door, stiff as a statue in his locked leg braces, watching the other kids pull their sleds toward Wright's Hill, just thinking of the fireworks made a difference thinking of a warm summer night, a cold coke, of fire roses blooming in the dark and pinwheels, and an American flag made of Roman candles. But now they have canceled the fireworks. And no matter what anyone says, Marty feels that it is really the fourth itself, his fourth, that they have done to death. Only his uncle Al, who blew into town late this morning to have the traditional salmon and fresh peas with the family, had understood. He had listened closely, standing on the veranda tiles in his dripping bathing suit. The others were swimming and laughing in the Coast Law's new pool on the other side of the house after lunch. Marty finished, 
and looked at Uncle Al anxiously. Do you see what I mean? Do you get it? It hasn't got anything to do with being crippled, like Katie says, or getting the fireworks all mixed up with America, like Grandpa thinks. It's just not right when you look forward to something for so long. It's not right for Victor Bull and some dumb town council to come along and take it away. Not when it's something you really need. Do you get it? There was a long, agonizing pause while Uncle Al considered Marty's question. Time enough for Marty to hear the kick rattle of the diving board at the deep end of the pool, followed by Dad's hearty bellow, Looking good, Kate! Hey, hey, looking real good! Then Uncle Al said quietly, Sure, I get it. And I got something for you, too, I think. Maybe you can make your own fourth. My own fourth? What do you mean? Come on out to my car, Marty. I got something. Well, I'll show you. And he was striding away along the concrete path that circled the house before Marty could ask him what he meant. His wheelchair hummed along the path to the driveway, away from the sounds of the pool, splashes, laughing screams, the kathum of the diving board away from his father's booming big pal voice. The sound of his wheelchair was a low, steady hum that Marty barely heard. All his life, that sound and the clank of his braces had been the music of his movement. Uncle Al's car was a low-slung Mercedes convertible. Marty knew his parents disapproved of it. $28,000 death trap, his mother had once called it with a brusque little sniff. But Marty loved it. Once, Uncle Al had taken him for a ride on some of the back roads that crisscrossed Tarker's mills, and he had driven fast, 70, maybe 80. He wouldn't tell Marty how fast they were going. If you don't know, you won't be scared, he had said. But Marty hadn't been scared. His belly had been sore the next day from laughing. Uncle Al took something out of the glove compartment of his car, and as Marty rolled up and stopped, he put a bulky cellophane package on the boy's withered thighs. Here you go, kid, he said. Happy Fourth of July. The first thing Marty saw were exotic Chinese markings on the package's label. Then he saw what was inside, and his heart seemed to squeeze up in his chest. Mm -hmm. The cellophane package was full of fireworks. The ones that look like pyramids are twizzers, Uncle Al said. Marty, absolutely stunned with joy, moved his lips to speak, but nothing came out. Light the fuses, set them down, and they spray as many colors as there are on a dragon's breath. The tubes with the thin sticks coming out of them are bottle rockets. Put them in an empty Coke bottle and up they go. The little ones are fountains. There are two Roman candles, and of course, a package of firecrackers. But you better set those off tomorrow. Uncle Al cast an eye toward the noises coming from the pool. Thank you, Marty was finally able to gasp. Thank you, Uncle Al. Just keep mum about where you got them, Uncle Al said. A nod's as good as a wink to a blind horse, right? Right, right, Marty babbled although he had no idea what nods, winks, and blind horses had to do with fireworks. But are you sure you don't want them, Uncle Al? 
I can get more, Uncle Al said. I know a guy over in Bridgeton. He'll be doing business until it gets dark. He put a hand on Marty's head. You keep your fourth after everyone else goes to bed. Don't shoot off any of the noisy ones and wake them all up. And for Christ's sake, don't blow your hand off, or my big sis will never speak to me again. Then Uncle Al laughed and climbed into his car and roared the engine into life. He raised his hand in a half salute to Marty and then was gone while Marty was still trying to stutter his thanks. He sat there for a moment, looking after his uncle, swallowing hard to keep from crying. Then he put the packet of fireworks into his shirt and buzzed back to the house and his room. In his mind, he was already waiting for night to come and everyone to be asleep. He is the first one in bed that night. His mother comes in and kisses him goodnight, brusquely, not looking at his stick-like legs under the sheet. You okay, Marty? Yes, Mom. She pauses, as if to say something more, and then gives her head a little shake. She leaves. His sister Kate comes in. She doesn't kiss him, merely leans her head close to his neck so he can smell the chlorine in her hair, and she whispers, See? You don't always get what you want just because you're a cripple. You might be surprised what I get, he says softly, and she regards him for a moment with narrow suspicion before going out. His father comes in last and sits on the side of Marty's bed. He speaks in his booming big pal voice. Everything okay, big guy? You're off to bed early, real early. Just feeling a little tired, Daddy. Okay. He slaps one of Marty's wasted legs with his big hand, winces unconsciously, and then gets up in a hurry. Sorry about the fireworks, but just wait till next year. Hey, hey, Rudy Patootie. Marty smiles a small, secret smile. So then he begins the waiting for the rest of the house to go to bed. It takes a long time. The TV runs on and on in the living room, canned laugh tracks often augmented by Katie's shrill giggles. The toilet in Grandpa's bedroom goes with a bang and a flush. His mother chats on the phone, wishes someone a happy fourth, says yes, it was a shame the fireworks show had been canceled, but she thought that under the circumstances everyone understood why it had to be. Yes, Marty had been disappointed. Once near the end of her conversation, she laughs, and when she laughs, she doesn't sound a bit brusque. She hardly ever laughs around Marty. Every now and then, as 7.30 became 8 and 9, his hand creeps under his pillow to make sure the cellophane bag of fireworks is still there. Around 9.30, when the moon gets high enough to peer into his window and flood his room with silvery light, the house finally begins to wind down. The TV clicks off. Katie goes to bed, protesting that all her friends got to stay up late in the summer. After she's gone, Marty's folks sit in the parlor a while longer. Their conversation only murmurs. And... And maybe he's slept. Because when he next touches the wonderful bag of fireworks, he realizes that the house is totally still and the moon has become even brighter, bright enough to cast shadows. He takes the bag out along with the book of matches he found earlier. 
He tucks his pajama shirt into his pajama pants, drops both the bag and the matches into his shirt, and prepares to get out of bed. This is an operation for Marty, but not a painful one, as people sometimes seem to think. There is no feeling of any kind in his legs, so there can be no pain. He grips the headboard of the bed, pulls himself up to a sitting position, and then shifts his legs over the edge of the bed one by one. He does this one-handed, using his other hand to hold the rail, which begins at his bed and runs all the way around the room. Once he had tried moving his legs with both hands and somersaulted helplessly head over heels onto the floor. The crash brought everyone running. You stupid show-off, Kate had whispered fiercely into his ear after he had been helped into his chair, a little shaken up but laughing crazily in spite of the swelling on one temple and his split lip. You want to kill yourself, huh? And then she had run out of the room crying. Once he's sitting on the edge of the bed, he wipes his hands on the front of his shirt to make sure they're dry and won't slip. Then he uses the rail to go hand over hand to his wheelchair. His useless scarecrow legs, so much dead weight, drag along behind him. The moonlight is bright enough to cast his shadow bright and crisp on the floor ahead of him. His wheelchair is on the brake, and he swings into it with confident ease. He pauses for a moment, catching his breath, listening to the silence of the house. Don't shoot off any of the noisy ones tonight, Uncle Al had said. And listening to the silence, Marty knows that was right. He will keep his fourth by himself, and to himself, and no one will know. At least not until tomorrow, when they see the blackened husks of the twizzers and the fountains out on the veranda. And then it wouldn't matter. As many colors as there are yeah, on a dragon's yeah, breath, the Uncle Alan said. But Marty supposes there's no law against a dragon breathing silently. He lets the brake off his chair and flips the power switch. The little amber eye, the one that means his battery is well charged, comes on in the dark. Marty pushes right turn. The chair rotates right. Hey, hey. When it is facing the veranda doors, he pushes forward. The chair rolls forward, humming quietly. Marty slips the latch on the double doors, pushes forward again, and rolls outside. He tears open the wonderful bag of fireworks and then pauses for a moment, captivated by the summer night. The somnolent chirr of the crickets, the low, fragrant breeze that barely stirs the leaves of the trees at the edge of the woods, the almost unearthly radiance of the moon. He can wait no longer. He brings out a snake, strikes a match, lights its fuse, and watches in entranced silence as it splutters green-blue fire and grows magically, writhing and spitting flame from its tail. The fourth, he thinks, his eyes alight. The fourth, the fourth. Happy Fourth of July to me. The snake's bright flame gutters low, flickers, goes out. Marty lights one of the triangular twizzers and watches as it spouts fire as yellow as his dad's lucky golf shirt. Before it can go out, he lights a second that shoots off light as dusky red as the roses which grow beside the picket fence around the new pool. 
Now a wonderful smell of spent powder fills the night for the wind to rafter and pull slowly away. His groping hands pull out the flat packet of firecrackers next, and he has opened them before he realizes that to light these would be calamity. Their jumping, snapping, machine gun roar would wake the whole neighborhood. Fire, flood, alarm, excursion, all of those. And one ten-year-old boy named Martin Coslaw in the doghouse until Christmas, most likely. He pushes the black cats further up on his lap, gropes happily in the bag again, and comes out with the biggest twizzer of all—a world-class twizzer, if ever there was one. It is almost as big as his closed fist. He lights it with mixed fright and delight, and tosses it. Red light, as bright as hellfire, fills the night, and it is by this shifting, feverish glow that Marty sees the bushes at the fringe of the woods below the veranda shake and part. There is a low noise, half cough, half snarl. The beast appears. It stands for a moment at the base of the lawn and seems to scent the air. And then it begins to shamble up the slope toward where Marty sits on the slate flagstones in his wheelchair, his eyes bulging, his upper body shrinking against the canvas back of his chair. The beast is hunched over, but it is clearly walking on its two rear legs, walking the way a man would walk. The red light of the twizzer skates hellishly across its green eyes. It moves slowly, its wide nostrils flaring rhythmically, scenting prey, almost surely scenting that prey's weakness. Marty can smell it, its hair, its sweat, its savagery. It grunts again, its thick upper lip, the color of liver, wrinkles back to show its heavy tusk-like teeth. Its pelt is painted a dull silvery red. It has almost reached him. Its clawed hands, so like unlike human hands, reaching for his throat. When the boy remembers the packet of firecrackers, hardly aware he is going to do it, he strikes a match and touches it to the master fuse. The fuse spits a hot line of red sparks that singe the fine hair on the back of his hand, crisping them. The werewolf. Momentarily off balance, draws backwards, uttering a questioning grunt that, like his hands, is nearly human. Marty throws the packet of firecrackers in its face. They go off in a banging, flashing train of light and sound. The beast utters a screech roar of pain and rage. It staggers backwards. Clawing at the explosions that tattoo grains of fire and burning gunpowder into its face, Marty sees one of its lamp-like green eyes whiff out as four crackers go off at once with a terrific thundering kapow at the side of its muzzle. Now its screams are pure agony. It claws at its face, bellowing, and as the first lights go on in the Coslaw house, it turns. And bounds back down the lawn toward the woods, leaving behind it only a smell of singed fur and the first frightened and bewildered cries from the house. What was that? His mother's voice, 
not sounding a bit brusque. Who's there, goddammit? His father, not sounding very much like a big pal. Marty? Kate, her voice quavering, not sounding mean at all. Marty, are you all right? Grandfather Coleslaw sleeps through the whole thing. Marty leans back in his wheelchair as the big red twizzer gutters its way to extinction. Its light is now the mild and lovely pink of an early sunrise. He is too shocked to weep. But his shock is not entirely a dark emotion, although the next day his parents will bundle him off to visit his Uncle Jim and Aunt Ida over in Stowe, Vermont, where he will stay until the end of summer vacation. The police concur. They feel that the full moon killer might try to attack Marty again and silence him. There is a deep exultation in him. It is stronger than the shock. He has looked into the terrible face of the beast and lived. And there is simple childlike joy in him as well. A quiet joy he will never be able to communicate later to anyone, not even Uncle Al, who might have understood. He feels this joy because the fireworks have happened after all. And while his parents stewed and wondered about his psyche, and if he would have complexes from the experience, Marty Coslaw came to believe in his heart that it had been the best fourth of all. August. Sure, I think it's a werewolf, Constable Neary says. He speaks too loudly, maybe accidentally, more like accidentally on purpose, and all conversation in Stan's barbershop comes to a halt. It is going on just half past August, the hottest August anyone can remember in Tarker's Mills for years, and tonight the moon will be just one day past full. So the town holds its breath, waiting. Constable Neary surveys his audience and then goes on from his place in Stan Pelkey's middle barber chair, speaking weightily, speaking judicially, speaking psychologically, all from the depths of his high school education. Neary is a big, beefy man, and in high school he mostly made touchdowns for the Tarkers Mills Tigers. His classwork earned him some C's and not a few D's. There are guys, he tells them, who are kind of like two people. Kind of like split personalities, you know. They are what I'd call fucking schizos. He pauses to appreciate the respectful silence which greets this, and then goes on. Now this guy, I think he's like that. I don't think he knows what he's doing when the moon gets full and he goes out and kills somebody. He could be anybody, a teller at the bank, a gas jockey at one of those stations out on the town road, maybe even someone right here now, in the sense of being an animal inside and looking perfectly normal outside, yeah, you bet. But if you mean, do I think there's a guy who sprouts hair and howls at the moon, no, that shit's for kids. What about the coleslaw boy, Neary? Stan asks continuing to work carefully around the roll of fat at the base of Neary's neck. His long, sharp scissors go snip, snip, snip. Just proves what I said, Neary responds with some exasperation. That shit's for kids. In truth, 
He feels exasperated about what's happened with Marty.